So to me, having a really good Uniswap cross-chain experience is I think like maybe the most important unlock. And luckily, I think Uniswap X cross-chain is, is a fantastic design that is going to really unlock a lot in terms of just in general interoperability and moving assets between chains. As you could imagine having like the main Uniswap chain not being on, on Ethereum one. That requires, again, that people still be able to use it as if it is. All right, everyone, we will be back to the program in just a moment. But before we do, I want to share something that Blockworks has been cooking up for these last couple of months. March of this coming year in London, Blockworks is hosting DAS London, the largest institutionally focused conference in all of crypto. Goldman, JP Morgan, 0.72, all in one room so you can know what the big money is doing. So click the link at the bottom of this episode. It'll take you right over to the homepage and you Use Bell 20 for 20% off. I will see you in sunny London town in March. Hey everyone, this episode is brought to you by Maverick Protocol, a suite of liquidity tools built around an innovative AMM. Maverick helps token projects, DAO treasuries, LPs, or basically anyone in DeFi shape their liquidity with efficiency and flexibility. How, you might ask? Stick around and you're going to be hearing about them more later. Now, on with the show. All right, everyone, welcome back to another bittersweet episode of Bell Curve because uh, I'm joined by my my co-host of this season, Dan Robinson, and this is this is the final one. This is the wrap up. So um, it's sweet because it was a great season, but it's bitter because, yeah, this is uh, this is unfortunately the end. But I'm yeah, looking forward to this. It's been a hell of a ride. Hopefully in a future season, you can bring me back as a guest to talk about something other than taxes and math. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, we can do a whole Dutch auction episode, just special for you. Um, I'm sure that'll, that'll, that'll feature in somewhere. Um, but guys, yeah, this has been a really fun season with Dan. If, you, if you're just tuning in for the first one, I'd highly recommend you go back and listen to the interview episodes of this season. Dan and I dove really deep on a whole bunch of different uh, topics related to DEXs. And this is going to be kind of the wrap up where we sort of do a TLDR and dive a little bit deeper into some of the, the highlights of the season. And, you know, Dan, it sort of feels appropriate to start off with the first topic that we spent the first couple episodes were dedicated to this, but it kept cropping up um, in in subsequent episodes, which is this idea of minimizing MEV leakage, uh, specifically with a focus on uh, mitigating lever, which is the sort of loss that LPs take by not having um, constant access to to sort of pricing data. So, you know, when you look out into the future um, and you look at sort of promising solutions to lever or recapture a value at the application layer around DEXs, you know, what were either some of your takeaways for the season or like things that you're really kind of excited about promising areas of research, projects, et cetera? Yeah. So first, I think, you know, and we, we kicked off the season by talking a lot about this, but and thinking about why are we so focused on MEV when we talk about DEXs? Mm-hmm. I think part of the reason is that if, if you come to DEXs entirely as a, as like a market design problem and you, and you treat it as uh, using the same tools um, and concepts that people use in traditional finance, and you see it as largely a zero-sum game between market sophisticated market makers and, and traders, um, I think there are very important insights to be taken from that. But it's worth thinking about that in traditional finance, the spreads we're talking about um, are so much smaller and so much more efficient. The experience is so much better than it is in DEXs that actually they're running up against these theoretical limits um, that we're not even close to. And mm. so I, it's, it's important to think about when we're talking about DEX research, where is this value leaking out? Uh, what are the improvements that could actually make it better for all the real participants in the system before we start to actually hit these hit these theoretical limits and have to and have to think about the same kind of problems that traditional um, uh, finance systems do in the in at least the ways that they think about them? And I think MEV is one of the biggest, where if value is going functionally to the proposed to the block proposer rather than to to any traders, to anyone who's doing any trading participating in the system, 
that's just generally it's going to be a net negative for all for liquidity for um, uh, trader experience for everyone in the system. And I think that's that's why we see that as the biggest pot of value to take from before we have to worry about how we split it um, uh, all between between participants within the system. And so I think that uh, that framing of of uh, there being this incredible incredible you know um, pot of value to be reclaimed by decks before we even have to hit some of the harder trade offs. Uh, with that being MEV, I think is why so many DEX researchers are MEV researchers and why particularly loss versus rebalancing, which is one of the most tangible forms of that, um, uh, is, is I think, a big topic right now. Yeah, I tend to agree. Uh, w- you know, one, one question that I had for you, and it's, it's funny, we did this, it was the second episode of the season. We did it with Eugene and, and Doug, and we talked about AMMs versus central limit order books. And when we did the episode, this was sort of pre this uh, renaissance, this mini renaissance that Solana is, ha- is having right now. and I think that the two interesting, actually, there are sort of three uh, interesting aspects when you look at that, which is one, the central limit order book design, which doesn't really make sense on Ethereum, does make sense on either your own specific app chain, maybe in Cosmos or on Solana. Uh, you know, two, I think there was a very interesting discussion. We could have even dived a little bit deeper about the importance of block times, especially on something like Lever, uh, MEV in general. I feel like that's sort of um, rearing its head back again. But you know, I would love to, um, I'd be curious if you're looking on some of the DEX designs that are happening over in Solana, and maybe if we could sort of rediscuss this this idea of block times because, and the importance that it has on Mev and Lever, because I actually saw Stefan, you know, a flash, or ex-Flashbot's uh, fame, you know, he posted one of his predictions for the new year was actually doubling or tripling the Ethereum block size. And I've seen a lot of, you know, very block different time. takes on, yeah, yeah, block yeah. time, yeah. And uh, I've seen a lot of very different takes on uh, a very different takes on that's bad for Mev. It's good for Mev. Can you just sort of revisit this idea of the the impact that um, block times have? Yeah. So I think I think two different discussions get a bit bundled together here um, in a way that that can lead to some confusion, and even I think has confused me in the past. And one is I think the there's this real. Um, uh, line of research in you know in traditional finance, we talked a lot about this uh, season about the Eric Brutish paper on uh, uh, frequent batch auctions as a solution um, as a uh, market design, and I think um, that's one where it says when you get to these very fast, uh, incredibly fast blocks um, uh, and these latency games, you often can have a lot of of waste, um, a lot of unfairness, a lot of potential uh, centralization um, in your in your in your market structure as a result of those games happening. Um, and I think once you get down to these fundamental latency limits, you know, once you're below, um, I don't want, I don't want to name like a particular, limit, maybe, maybe like half a second, maybe, maybe, um, one second maybe, or maybe less, um, then definitely I think you, you start to see, uh, real trade-offs and when you're already hitting that, I do think when we're talking about like 12 second versus 24 second block time, uh, block times, um, I think these other, these other factors start to dominate. Um, and I think you, uh, yeah, so I think when that's it's a worry that I have is that um, uh, these lessons that are that I think are correct about uh, it's not always good to do first come first serve and that things break down at a certain level with first come first serve um, if you do it uh, at two at two low latencies doesn't necessarily mean that like really long block times is necessarily the solution um, or that it makes it any better um, and yeah I think I think there's you know there's this school of thought and mostly it's not coming from Dex designers mostly this is coming from um, people who are concerned, and I think often rightly, about the centralization of the of the base layer um, and about the Ethereum consensus um, in particular that are that are pushing for okay, we may need to we may want longer um, uh, block times. But I think it does come with a real trade off for 
uh, for DEXs that are trying to be built natively on top of that. And, you know, I think it, it will lead ultimately to um, uh, people not relying on the um, on blocks for uh, on block producers for uh, uh, for ordering of transactions and DEXs, which I think might be OK. I think that that probably is where we're going, is that just and I think it, it might be healthier for everyone. Just a, what, one funny irony that I've noticed recently is I think the biggest problem facing um, app developers and layer two developers right now is that a lot of their MEV is leaking to the base layer. Um, and the biggest problem facing the base layer right now is that a lot of application MEV is leaking to the base layer and it's destabilizing their consensus. Um, like you see these things with timing games, for example. This is all a consequence of there being too many like DEXs, too many uh, uh, applications that are relying on the base layer for these things that produce a lot of MEV and that, that cause these timing games that could destabilize just the stability of the consensus. And so there's actually an alignment here, a really nice alignment, where L2 uh, developers are like, it's a shame that we're, that we're giving up so much MEV to the L1. Um, and the L1 developers are like, we don't want the MEV. We actually want you to keep the MEV because it's actually hurting us to be giving it to our proposals. It's, it's making our, our blockchain less stable. And so I think in the future, we're just going to see more of that MEV be captured at, at higher layers. And we talked to, um, to Ludwig about, um, about some of the solutions for this. Um, but I think, I think L2s are another, um, are another, of course, just a more general solution. Um, and I think these kind of these solutions where we just say, all right, let's just not put MEV on the on the L1 means that we might be able to have long block times on the L1. And I think that's I think that might be fine if, again, you've got uh, transactions being sequenced in some way by by other parties. Yeah, that is a really neat alignment. And for for folks who are maybe less familiar, can you just sort of underline wait, what what are timing games when we talk about? Yeah, this, this is a phenomenon we've started to see in practice um, more recently. And so this is in Ethereum. I mean, I'm I'm not an expert at this at this layer, so I may maybe this is simplified for the Tory version of it. Um, you're supposed you have uh, you're supposed to send your block um, uh, basically at the beginning of a, at the beginning of this four second period. There's like four second period to send your block, and what people have realized is you know I can actually uh, propose this block if I'm a block proposer, I can get a few extra seconds of MEV, maybe almost like four seconds extra of MEV from this block by sending my block a little later because attesters, the people who are going to sign off on this block, um, are, are, you know, are still going to sign it if they receive it at the end of this period. And that's, that period is basically meant to support regular um, latency. Um, but I can, you know, I, can, I can make a 16-second block rather than a 12-second block if I'm able to wait almost to the end of this period. But then, of course, if the person before you um, uh, is also doing this, they've actually taken four seconds off the beginning so you end up with 12 seconds of MEV anyway. You just shifted it a lot later and put the network in a much less stable position. Um, and this is because for the proposer, what you want is to have as much MEV as possible in your block and not, and not leave any of it for the next block. So you're going to push that, that uh, time to the limit. Um, and I think this, you know, this runs the risk of destabilizing Ethereum's consensus because it just means you're relying more on this, uh, on like this, this very tight uh, latency bound, basically, that the proposers are calculating for when they send their block. Um, without really necessarily like improving anything in terms of user latency. You're just sort of shifting everything by four seconds. Um, and this is because it's just so valuable to have a few seconds of block time when there's this big um, uh, latency arb available on the block. Yeah. It also does open up a potential vector of centralization, I'd say maybe in the, within something like staking pools like Lido uh, sort of, uh, or P2P, I guess, or whichever entity ultimately. Like they, you kind of saw a bunch of their validators like, shift um basically further in time exactly this so i think i think there are implications to that and is, is that related dan i'm um also not super familiar with this but there was a problem i don't know a couple months back i can't really remember where ethereum was having trouble finalizing blocks for a little bit and that has sort of led to this proposal to 
uh, increase the max limit for the amount of stake, just because there are so many different uh, nodes out there that need to you know provide attestations. It's just you know there's some sort of uh, physical limit, right, for how many, how much, you, how far you can send uh, information around the world to however many different validators. So that is interesting. Like that, I don't know if those things are related, but I see the yeah. argument for destabilization. There are, there are a lot of reasons why I think there, and Ethereum consensus researchers would be the first to tell you this, why a lot of the things in it are not, are not optimal right now. Um, mm-hmm. I think, yeah, I think one, one of the things is you, you have, you have this maximum staking amount, um, 32 ETH. So like every, if you want to run a validator with more than 32 ETH, you have to just run a bunch of different validators, but that's kind yeah. of just, it's just forcing you to basically civil attack the system. Um, you know, it's not, it's not really a civil attack because they know that people will do this and that's part of the system, but it means it's kind of pointless that they do, that they, that they do it this way. And it's, it's not, it's not really done for like, you know, it's not supposed to be actually more, they don't think it's causing more decentralization. It's more just like, it's sort of a simpler algorithm in some senses if you, if you have that, but yeah, it causes all these issues, um, uh, because you have to just have communication potentially between like, you know, hundreds of thousands of different like public keys, if not individual validators, um, uh, in order to do this. So yeah, I think that's. I think there's improvements to the consensus protocol that could possibly uh, help with that. But I do think the, the more controversial change might be to raise that, to raise that minimum um, and yeah. to say, like, you, can't, you, you need more than 32 weeks to stake because ultimately that imposes some limits as well. And I think that's controversial because, you know, a lot of people um, want, their, want to maintain the possibility of solo staking, of somebody being able to stake on, on Ethereum. And I don't know if you've done a, a season on um, Ethereum consensus or on or consensus or, or the base layer. Um, uh, but proof of stake, like that would be, I think that would be a great thing to dive in on. I'm, I'm not the person to really the expert to talk about this, but I think you're starting to see a lot of really interesting things happen around that. I'll, I'll tell you this. One thing that I've been thinking a lot more about, because there's just not an enormous amount of info about it is fee markets. There's a really interesting history of uh, fee markets actually going from Bitcoin to, I was a huge nerd over Thanksgiving. I've talked about this, but I went back and listened to a bunch of old Epicenter podcasts that were happening during the block size wars. Now, that's not necessarily just the fee market of Bitcoin, but it was, but it was brought up quite a bit. Um, and, and if you go back and actually listen to some of the old like Tim Roughgarden episodes during EIP one, T- Tim is like, in my opinion, the way he describes fees and his level of knowledge is like probably deeper than anyone else that I've come into contact with. But, you know, there's surprisingly little out there on fee markets for such a critical part of how all of these different uh, L1s especially work. And it's actually something that feels very relevant. Like we hosted a, a Solana research hangout this week in our office. And the only thing anyone wanted to talk about was fee markets because it's right. kind of broken as it exists on Solana today. But there's the ability to do something like multidimensional fee markets where you're pricing out different resources in a more granular way. And there could be, uh, there's an opportunity for a step function group uh, as well. So yeah, it's a really, I, I, think, I think maybe underappreciated part of it. I tend to be a big EIP 5059 fan. And that's Me in part because I was I was like in the Uniswap Discord a lot in in 2020 when I didn't have anything else to do, and um, back then it was it was just really common for transactions. Like the most common support question would be um, people have uh, uh, transactions that have been in the mempool for like 10 minutes and they want I need to figure out how to um, up their fee manually. Um, and even to do that and just it just completely changed that whole that whole dynamic. It may yeah. it may have changed by, like by ultimately I think increasing average fees that people were paying. Um, so not, it's not necessarily entirely good, but I think just from a user experience perspective, I think it was fantastic. And then I think, of course, you know, the, um, more value at the time, certainly more value going to Ethereum rather than going to, uh, to miners was, I think, considered positive. Although again, that changes a bit in proof of stake where all that value sort of functionally is going to stake at this point. But EV59 is getting a lot more controversial recently. Like people, some people have been talking about, we actually roll it back. 
Yeah, you should talk to, talk to Max Resnick about it. I don't know if it, I'm not going to put those words in his mouth that we should roll back necessarily. But um, what's the, but think, uh, what, what's the reason for that? Just out of curiosity. One of the reasons, some of the reasons I think, um, you know, maybe Presswitch has talked about this as well, is it may not be actually incentive compatible. Um, like it could be, it could be, uh, if proposers were to, um, certainly if they were the, to collude to basically push down the, the base fee, um, yeah. they, you know, it's, it's possible to like actually have proposers capture more value. Um, and so, you know, that, that's not necessarily damning in itself. Um, but there are maybe alternative mechanisms that would be more resistant to that. Maybe not. And I'm, I, I think I'm not a, I haven't come to a conclusion on it yet, but I've been surprised to see more people being like, oh, I don't know if maybe we need a different fee market entirely on, um, on L1. And then on L2, I think a lot of, um, applications have adopted, a lot of L2s have adopted 1559. And I think it mostly, it mostly actually seems to work fairly well, but it may, you may want to change that given in L2s that work very differently. So there's, there may be ways to, for example, you could have, you know, it's on some, um, you know, you could, you, when you do, when you have PBS, PBS versus PGA as one, as one spectrum, right. And most, uh, uh, L2s using PGA right now. And, um, uh, you know, 1559 versus other fee mechanisms another, as another metric. I think there's a lot of different combinations that people would think about, and they might be different on L2s versus L1s. Yeah. You know, I'm going to link this actually in the, in the, James is it, first of all, he has one of the best, I think most underappreciated blogs in crypto, but he, he wrote a, you're, you're reminding me of this, uh, that the title of the blog post is, has anyone checked in on 1559 recently? And keep in mind when 1559 was described or was designed, you know, it, it there, this was before anything like uh, uh, proposer builder separation and separating the role of what has historically been the miner and is now the validator, but is now really the validator and the and builders. Um, it changes the incentives. And there actually is, there was a sort of a baked in incentive at one point for the ultimate builders of the block to not push the the target down. Uh, there's, a, there's a target and a limit uh, in 1559, but now that incentive is basically gone because you've, you know, you've cleaved these two roles in two. So it's, it's, it is very interesting, very nerdy, cool stuff. The the other thing I'll say about 1559, and we want to talk about DEXs, so we make this be the last note, but it was relevant to DEXs as well. We touched about it on it this season. But the other thing that's interesting about it is, you know, the, the reason for the burn originally was to make it incentive compatible with miners, right? You didn't want, the reason that you burn the base fee is so that there can't be some off-chain sort of solution in between miners and whoever's paying the fee. Like, hey, all right, it's $90 worth of gas, but I don't want to pay $90, like, I'll pay 60 and then you just rebate me 30 off chain. If you burn the fee, then you eliminate that possibility. But that kind of morphed over time into, you know, Ethereum tokenomics and buyback. And the, the narrative of it has changed over time. And if you go back to the early days of the discussion, it was very much so about this UX improvement that you were just alluding to there, Dan. Like it's much better user experience, but it's kind of changed over time into this, uh, you know, celebrating the berm and ultrasound money and all that stuff. And not to say that any of that's wrong, but it, it's a little bit of a rewrite. Um, so w- one thing uh, I'd love to get your get your take on just before we move into recapturing. I, I want to talk about actually specifically about FBAs and the episode that we did with uh, Ludwig and Anna. But the, the last thing about Solana is one thing I've, I've noticed um, is kind of this narrative is so first of all, Solana DEX fees are creeping up to uh, ETH DEX fees recently. Um, they're right? like a couple million yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, here I'll find the, I'll find the actual statistics for you. But if you look at TVL, it's like much, much lower. And so there's this kind of idea of capital efficiency. Um, you know that obviously central limit order books are you know different from AMMs. But I'd be curious from your perspective as you know a Dex designer who spent a lot of time thinking about this. Like, is TVL an overly simplistic 
sort of metric. For instance, is it better on uni v2 to have more, it'll show more TVL, but on v3, if people have the flexibility to kind of uh, provide liquidity at different ticks, et cetera. Like, how do you think about this kind of emerging, you know, sort of additional, maybe nuance of capital efficiency in the world of DEXs? Yeah. Sorry, when you said Solana fees are higher than... Um, or, uh, or it was volumes. It was volume. Uh, Solana Dex volumes. Yeah. 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 Got it. No, I had to. I had to this. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, yeah, well, certainly right. I I think capital efficiency. You know, obviously, with the move from V two to V three was almost entirely driven by um, feeling like actually TVL is the wrong metric, trying to get as much uh, unused capital in is is the wrong metric, and in fact that that you know liquidity at the margin is a much more important important metric, and in general, and that and that volume as well, I think is. Um, ultimately, more of a more of an important goal to search for us to uh, optimize for. So yeah, so I I think it's great that um, we're finding new ways to provide liquidity with lower TVL. Um, and I think you know if you look at the move also, also like Uniswap X potentially like you know you're as a system does no TVL, um, but if it's if it if it provides better execution for users, then that's a really that's a really important um, uh, thing to have. I think yeah, so I, I think TVL as a as a metric it matters when you're comparing like to like things um but i think comparing certainly some people try to compare like lending protocols to to dexes to uh right you know, whatever it's like it's, it's all extremely apples to oranges when talking about this um i think volume is not necessarily the right metric though as well um like i think volume obviously can be gamed but even when it's when it's not being gamed, it isn't necessarily telling you the the thing you want i think um yeah for, for different things you might want different metrics but i've started to to try to think about things more in terms of um uh, of order quality and order execution um, uh, and price improvement as maybe the as maybe the thing like if you want to just hyper optimize one thing um, then just giving best execution to you know better prices to users is really actually the thing you want not necessarily getting as much volume as possible. Okay, I think that's good. You know that actually segues really nicely into frequent batch auctions. So you know I, I'd be curious. This this actually ended up coming up as well in, with in our interview with Antonio where he discussed implementing an FBA within uh, DYDX, that's their, their sort of part of their new upgrade. But, you know, we talked a little bit about, um, you know, from the perspective of the, the LP, right, why lever is so important, because ultimately, these LPs need to be profitable. Um, but on the other hand, there's the question of best execution, and how do you define best execution? And if so, what's the correct uh, construction for an exchange to give users the best execution? So, yeah, I, I guess just to you, I know you have a relatively uh, straightforward definition of what best execution is, but if you could define best execution and, um, you know, maybe touch on how like an FBA, like how suited is an FBA to doing that or alternative designs that you're sort of interested in. Yeah, well, right. So maybe, maybe I shouldn't have said best execution because I think that's a term, term of art that can often be talking about if you've got, you know, the best possible execution available in the, um, right. in the world, which is what stuff like, you know, Reg MNS, NMS is trying to um, uh, enforce. Right, so I'm talking here about like about, right, price improvement. Um, I think ultimately, you know, if you have with DEX as the end user for a DEX, I think that we're trying to optimize for is the swappers. Is somebody showing up and wants to get from one asset into another? Um, and you know, what we want is in the long term an equilibrium for them to be able to to trade at, at the best possible price. Um, and I think that requires, in the moment, possibly giving them the best execution available anywhere. Um, but it also requires. Which be so it just means like you'll you'll get a better price trading on this system than you will trading anywhere else. Um, like that's that might be part of it, or we or at least you know that we try to optimize for that price. But the other thing it requires is that all these other participants you know, actually engage in the system. Liquidity providers provide liquidity to the system. You know, there's you actually want any there to be a stable equilibrium where where swappers get this. So I think you know, and this is something that a lot of people have pointed out um, 
including as a critique of some of my ideas, which I think are, you know, I think they, they have a point, which is you want, to, you want to make sure that the whole, that every, all parties in the system are actually um, incentivized and are, and are uh, uh, some, some the proper uh, incentives to, be, to participate, which might mean in, in an individual moment, somebody, you know, a swapper might be like, just, they might have to trust to this system and it's possible the system gives them a worse price than they would get somewhere else. But in general, mm. like they know that on average they will get a better price from this from this system, and that can happen when you when you uh, you know want to go trade on a batch auction. Um, is some, sometimes you know you're you're taking the risk that maybe you will get a worse price than you might be able to get if you were trading somewhere else. But ultimately, on average, because you know that's that's what's going to get all the participants to participate in this system and, and create uh, deeper liquidity. Mm. So. You know, I would like to return a little bit to that and go a little bit more in depth with that interview that we did with Ludwig and, and Anna and maybe transition this a little bit to how some of that, uh, how more mechanically some of the uh, the MEV is recaptured at the application layer. We, we didn't go quite as deep into the construction of something like Angstrom as would have been been fun, I think, on, on that episode. And uh, yeah, I, I'd be curious, actually, if you could just maybe, uh, first of all, if you could maybe just remind listeners, like, what is the... Uh, what is the basic construction of of Angstrom and sort of the um, all, all the different actors in in uh, Ludwig's design, and then maybe we can get into the weeds of like what are some of the different flavors, uh, especially on on hooks or other dexes or whatever of recapturing that that map at the application layer. So the the general category of Angstrom solution is what I call an ex post auction uh, MEV auction mm. um, uh, for LPs, and what that means is that after volatility is realized, so in during the process of, that a block is being constructed, um, an Ethereum block is being built, uh, during that process at some point, as, ideally as late as possible, there is an auction held where somebody bids in, um, and pays uh, to, be the, to be able to be the first trader in, in the block. Um, and the right, to, the right to, to trade against liquidity providers, passive liquidity providers um, on that pool, uh, on a particular uh, uh, DEX pool. And with... Um, uh, Angstrom, they're building it as a, as a hook on Uniswap V4. Um, and so it's, it's a V4 pool where there's a hook that just enforces that only the winner of this auction um, can, uh, can trade on this pool initially. So that's, that's at least one part, and that's the part we talked uh, most about. There's, there's also a batch auction component to it, but, but maybe just talking first about the lever recapture component at the top of block auction. So the, the obvious question there is, who is holding this auction? So the auction happens mm. during this block. So we, we know it can't be done entirely on-chain because the proposer for that block controls whatever goes on chain. And so in that case, they, they'll, they'll just censor every, everyone else's bit. So they would end up waiting this auction. So we're back to where we started with the proposer captures all the lever and that ends up being there. So it has to be held in, in somewhere else other than just like through uh, bids on chain. Um, and the, uh, their solution is to effectively have a separate consensus process among, among validators, uh, among a separate, a different set of validators who are, who are holding this auction. And they do it in a way that is more, that is more censorship resistant. Um, and I think you know, there, the details of that auction aren't, aren't released as much, but one, one that is, is the one we talked about with DYDX. Um, with DYDX put out a post about, about how to do this in the context of their batch auctions. And that's one where you, you uh, have a consensus process that doesn't just have a monopolistic proposer where the proposer is the only determinant of what goes in the block. You also have, in general, like this process uh, for something like Tendermint, um, BFT consensus. You have a lot of other validators who are uh, in normal tendermint are just voting on the block. They're just saying, "Here's what's." Um, uh, I say, "Yeah, yes or no" to what the proposer uh, proposed. Um, but with what DYDX has uh, designed, um, in addition to 
uh, voting and saying yes, they can also contribute additional information. They can add um, transactions. And generally in DYDX, like it's included in the next block rather than in the current block, but it's the same basic principle where you have this collaborative process where you need you know, more than a third of, um, uh, or yeah, you, you end up getting input basically from two thirds of, uh, of validators into every block. And that makes the individual, this individual consensus process uh, more censorship resistant. So to, to sum, sum that up, there's a separate consensus process than Ethereum. But in order to avoid this problem we have in, in Ethereum, where the block opposer basically could just censor all other things, you can run an auction just on chain there. You have a consensus process that works a little differently where you have input from other validators. And there's an assumption that at least, you know, that's, that some percentage of those uh, validators are honest and non-sensory. Mm. Let me ask you this, just at a high level. I mean, th this actually uh, sounds a little bit like, it's almost sounds like uh, similar to the discussion on roll-ups where, okay, we've got one centralized sequencer, but ultimately we're going to have to, we'll have decentralized sequencers or shared sequencers, but then we have to do some form of like, uh, civil resistance and leader rotation. And then, oh, we're kind of running like a separate set of consensus on top of our Ethereum consensus. Does that feel just as a, a mechanism designer, does that feel inefficient to you? Is there a reason why, you know what I mean? Is is it inefficient or is it not? And I'm just, you know, for whatever reason, that actually makes a ton amount of, a ton of sense. But you know what I mean? I think, I think there's a, there is an efficiency to it. Um, and it's what, what's what comes from modularity. Um, mm -hmm. And I think there's, you know, it's a, it's a big meme um, recently, but I think there's, there really is a lot of advantage to saying we're going to have one layer of consensus that just does it does one thing. It just you know um, uh, just reaches like some extremely final, relatively so slow consensus, for example, and very like just everyone in the world actually agrees. And you think of that. That's maybe like Ethereum L1 consensus. Um, and then at at higher layers, we can say, all right, we're going to have some consensus that maybe maybe it is trusted for less. Maybe we're actually not as worried about um, reverts on it because we're not going to you know you're able to, to violate the assumptions. You're not able to like steal everybody's money, but you are able to, um, to extract like a little value. So we could have different security assumptions about it. Um, maybe it's just like, it could be detected if you, if you misbehave and then we'll just move to something else, right? It's not as uh, all or nothing um, security. And so then we can actually get better, better properties out of it. And different, different systems might use different, um, uh, you know, L2s, different, different sequencer solutions. Um, and I think, I think there's, a lot of, there's a lot of efficiency gains there potentially. There's, also gains just in terms of what kind of innovation you can have, the pace at which things can, can be discovered and can change. And I think it's with Ethereum L1 consensus, they rightly are just very careful about making any changes or trying to push anything uh, too aggressively because if you break something, you break it for everybody. Um, you right. know, and then like it's broken. Um, whereas I think with, with L2s, you can be a lot more aggressive, especially if, again, you're, you're enforcing these security properties so that you can't, you know, like being too aggressive doesn't mean that people, everybody loses their money. It just means maybe your application um, doesn't work for what you designed it for. I think we can have, you know, it's nice to be able to have a lot more innovation at that layer. And I think the, the key thing here is, you know, this has always been part of the Ethereum thesis is that you have, you know, Ethereum as layer one, and then you get to have a lot more experimentation on the L2, I'm sorry, on the application. People have always, mm. that, that's why Ethereum, whatever got us all excited about Ethereum in the first place is instead of, if you had a cool idea for an application, you don't have to build your own blockchain and do all that stuff. You could just build it as an application on Ethereum that's much simpler. I think what, what we've realized is you also may need to interpose a layer in between. Um, you may mm. need to have like a separate consensus layer or sequencer layer, and that could be an L2. It could be an application-specific sequencer like, um, uh, like Angstrom uh, uh, has designed. Um, it could be, you know, it could, it could be something, uh, something else. But really, it's a, all right, like this consensus that we're getting at the, L, at the L1 layer may not be um, enough, so we need to add another.
Interesting. All right, everyone, we will be back to the program in just a moment. But before we do, I want to share something that Blockworks has been cooking up for these last couple of months. March of this coming year in London, Blockworks is hosting DAS London, the largest institutionally focused conference in all of crypto. We are gathering 1,200 of the world's largest asset managers. So think TradFi macro funds, crypto native funds, big allocators, and financial institutions. So banks, payment processors, etc. all in one spot. It's very rare to get the likes of Goldman, JP Morgan, Point72, whatever, all in one room so you can know what the big money is doing. We're diving into the themes that they care about. So we're talking about the intersection of macro and crypto, where we are in the cycle, real world assets. So everything from stable coins to on-chain treasuries to tokenized assets. It's going to be a blast. But the other reason you really want to go is London, baby. Center of the world at one point. You got pub culture, you got fish and chips, great beer. It's going to be a blast. So because you're such great listeners to Bell Curve, there's a code BELL20 that's going to get you 20% off. So click the link at the bottom of this episode. It'll take you right over the homepage, you'll see all of our speakers and use Bell20 for 20% off. Ticket prices are going up soon. Make sure you go use that code. I will see you in sunny London town in March. One of the other questions that I had for you around, um, you know, speaking of Antonio, um, was, you know, it's it very interesting. We got through this entire season basically approaching things from the perspective of there being a a general sort of L1 uh, that produces generalized block space like Ethereum, and then we're building apps, and then there's some sort of either competition or effort to redistribute value away from L1 proposers back to apps and various different designs uh, for what the best way to do that is. And then we, we kind of ended on Antonio being this is a very different sort of paradigm where actually this is the Cosmos, uh, especially full stack app chain thesis where, you, you know, your validators run both application and consensus layer, um, uh, you know, code. And it's, it's very much one and the same. And, uh, you know, he, he had a very different kind of perspective on MEV because it, it's sort of a, a merged set of stakeholders, so to speak. Um, although he did include DYDX, the protocol, as an additional uh, stakeholder. So we still ended up with basically the same amount. But, you know, I'd be curious, any, any takeaways that you had from the Antonio episode or just for, for listeners who are trying to maybe merge uh, this concept of preventing MEV leakage that we've been talking about, again, this entire season within the context of something like an app chain. I mean, how should people be thinking about that? differently within the construct of an app chain. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And um, one thing that DYDX got, and we, we touched on it a little, but maybe should have emphasized more, is that mm. just by moving to their own app chain, um, where DYDX uh, uh, tokens need to be staked uh, with validators in order to, um, uh, for, the, for those validators to have this power to extract map, just by doing that, do align the whole system somewhat more um, in that you'd expect in equilibrium, basically, the MEV from, that can be extracted if it is extracted, is going to go to, actually, to just the UIDX stakers. It's not going to go to, um, uh, to those individual validators because they'll be competing. You know, validators will be competing in whichever one you'd expect, you know, uh, is able to, if you're able to extract more MEV, you'll be, um, from blocks, you'll be bidding, uh, you'll have to end up kicking back more and maybe potentially paying people to delegate to you, right? So you could end up at equilibrium where maximum MEV is extracted, but ultimately that all goes to the UIDX um, holders. And, you know, that, that's analogous to the situation we have where, um, arbitrageurs, you know, uh, uh, are very competitive. They're not actually capturing the profits from on Ethereum. That's generally going to proposers, and the proposers, in general, um, aren't able. Like, it's not like running really a really good proposer means you get to get a lot more uh, uh, profit because ultimately you're competing to get stake delegated to you in order to be able to, to validate more. So ultimately, that you know tends to go toward Ethereum holders. And so with DYDX, it's going to DYDX token holders rather than to some other platform. Right. So the, in some sense, leakage is is reduced. So I think that as, the, as a first order effect is significant. And I think we don't want to uh, discount that. That said, there's these second order effects, which include 
the experience for uh, users as a first order, as a second order here, experience for users is degraded, um, mm -hmm. right? So a swapper now has to think about, okay, you know, my, my trade might get maximally value extracted. And it's, it's not great consolation for them. It's like, but it is going to, it is going to the UIDX um, stakers, <laughs> right? It's going to screw the network. Right, right. Um, that's, that's not necessarily great consolation for them. And I think uh, there's also, you know, like third order effects here. We're like, okay, that means like they have to think about what kind of, you know, that, that might uh, discourage them from placing um, uh, retail swappers from, from propping on it. And so then like now, like anyone who's providing liquidity on the, on the system has to think about this. And you basically end up with just a collapse of this, of this whole thing and everybody is worse off and there's less fees going to anybody. Um, I think this is the same kind of thing we worry about with MEV. It's not, with MEV, the worry for Ethereum really is not um, that, uh, that, oh, like Ethereum, you know, ETH holders will get too rich and like too much of the money is going to come to them. It's that actually, if you have a system where ETH holders are extracting maximum value, that ultimately that's going to kill the golden goose that is providing all this value. And this is, this is the even bigger non-zero sum game that we also kicked off the season talking about is ultimately like, it's possible that Ethereum holders by extracting less value could actually end up making more, do more value. Because mm -hmm. as you, you decrease these, this deadweight loss, there's this, these costs to, to swapping. Um, and so as a result, like you get just like, you know, a hundred times more volume or something. And, and as a result, people, um, a lot more volume happens and you make more money. And I think that's the, that's what we're really ultimately, ultimately hoping for. And that's what I think DYDX is really focused on this is they, they actually, despite the fact that DYDX token holders, you know, you'd expect to be the beneficiary of this. It's still very important for them to do this so that they don't degrade user experiences so they don't end up collapsing the whole system. Um, mm -hmm. and so, yeah, I think maximum value extraction can be, can be short term, make a lot of sense. And. In you know in these kind of in this game theory, it's possible that it just only makes sense to to or you you are forced to maximally extract value. But I think everybody knows that potentially you end up with a tragedy of the commons there, where long term um, the the system just doesn't work for anybody. Yeah, I so 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 much to unpack there. But you know one of the reasons my my the interview that we did with Antonio is one of my favorite of the season is he's not afraid to just say his, his say his opinions. Um, like he I, he comes out and he was like, hey, we should be prioritizing swappers over everyone, which I like it probably is the right move. You know, you can't just ignore everyone else, but like that's probably the right thing to do. The the other thing just um, you know, it sounds very good from a narrative standpoint. Oh, you know, your stakers are, you know, part of the ecosystem, yada yada. But I think when you really examine that, it kind of breaks down a little bit. It's like, well, who are your stakers? You know, usually in, in Cosmos, it's like the same set of professional operators that are doing most of the validation. And actually with DYDX specifically, they have a really interesting validator set where there's a lot of like um it's actually very atypical of some of the other cosmos chains um there are some it's kind of an interesting makeup uh and then the other thing is like we did a season uh, it was the second season we did of the show on governance but this kind of meme of token holders and uh users being the same thing is really a meme it's not the same it's like you have a separate set of investors and then you've got users of the product and you probably have to prioritize the users of the product um but but some of the stuff that I think Antonio is doing with uh, taking advantage of ABCI++ vote extensions, although there's still a lot of wood to chop there. I don't want to, you know, there's a lot of work that's left to do and we're not sure how performant you can be. Um, I think it's extremely interesting, very holistic approach to, to MEV. Um, and I know you were involved in the design of that as well. So pretty cool stuff. Um, all right. Last, uh, last question that I had for you on that was just perps. Like we talked a little bit with Antonio about perps and frankly, we could have gone down the rabbit hole of doing like, uh, options and different sort of construction of like, there are some very interesting, like solidly forks up on, uh, up on optimism right now. And we could have gone out a little bit further into the risk spectrum of new DEXs, but, um, I'm glad we talked just a little bit on, on perps as well. I mean, what are your thoughts there relative market share, uh, kind of moving out from, from here relative to spot? Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not sure, certainly in the short term, 
I think in the long term, you know, my my goal for my personal goal um, with respect to Dex uh, volumes is to get Dex is to basically replace the centralized exchange ecosystem with a decentralized exchange ecosystem and have um, the vast any any volume that currently is happening in centralized exchange crypto should, in my view, should be happening in decentralized crypto. There's decentralized exchanges. There's no reason it shouldn't be. And so, in some sense, um, I guess what you'd expect would be maybe then we'll replicate. We'll end up with a somewhat similar market structure in decentralized exchanges. And there, in centralized exchange crypto volume uh, far exceeds spot volume, spot trading volume. And so, possibly, um, you'll end up actually with with uh, sort of something similar where eventually prep dex volume exceeds um, centralized exchange. Uh, sorry, ex- exceeds exceeds uh, spot dex volume. Um, I'm not sure that will happen. And one of the reasons is. Um, it seems like to me like a no-brainer for spot uh, volume to happen on decentralized exchanges. It's just better if, if you if we were to reduce the costs and the um, you know on these inefficiencies or whatever. But you know, it's just this is a crypto natively crypto asset. Like we should just rate it like a natively crypto asset. Um, once you start getting to derivatives, especially derivatives, say on on things that aren't on that same chain, you have some advantages. I think in terms of just like you could have more decentralized oracles if you have derivative on a of a token that is also available in spot form in the same in the same place. But once you get to other things, like it starts to be a little bit less obvious that um, that there's a huge advantage of doing it decentralized relative to centralized. Um, you, you still have, you know, in some sense, a uh, you know, it's still non-custodial. But yeah, so I'm I'm less sure. And then there's also a lot of you know, there's a lot of risk that comes from um, from perps, a lot of uh, 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 and a lot more sort of finicky governance. And like maybe it's possible it's just harder to get perp um, uh, dexes to be quite as like uh, secure as uh, or safe as centralized exchange one, ex- ones. That said, like centralized ones are not very safe. Uh, <laughs> as a, right. yeah. There's right. a lot of risks, including risks about custodial uh, custodialness of the collateral uh, when we talk about centralized ones. So my my take is I think both will ultimately exceed. I'm not sure which one will end up larger in the long run. But honestly, just like if you look at markets as well, like derivatives, the derivatives market is just much larger than the um, than the spot. It's like, it's like there's a lot more demand to trade a thing than there is you know uh, to, to trade. Referenced and referenced everything turns out when there is a trade that they do the thing. So I would guess probably it exceeds it at index as well. Mm. All right. I, I want to zoom out of some of the more specific episodes that we did and just ask you some of the big questions uh, that we referred to our guests uh, sort of time and time again. And this was a, this was at the at the end of the episode that we did with Anna and Ludwig. We got into this uh, question. There was a there was a little bit of a spirited back and forth actually between Ludwig and Anna about are we ever going to. Hey everyone, wanted to take a quick second to shout out this season's partner, Maverick Protocol. Now, many of you probably know Maverick as an innovative AMM, which they are, but in reality, they're a lot more than that as well. Maverick is a suite of tools for DeFi users and builders that allows them to put liquidity where it will get the most work done. Since Maverick launched in March, they have been gobbling up market share. And at the time of this recording, which is the end of September, on a trailing seven-day volume basis... Maverick is now a top three DEX by volume, and they support over 50% of the volume on the L2 ZK Sync era chain. Maverick enables LPs and token pairs to process higher volume with limited TVL, which allows them to support some of the highest levels of capital efficiency for LSTs like Rapsteed. Another very cool feature is something called Maverick Boosted Positions. So that allows protocols looking to bootstrap their token liquidity to target the shape of liquidity of any token pair with surgical precision. Maverick is backed by some of the leading institutions in crypto, Founders Fund, Pantera, Coinbase Ventures, Finance Lab. They are all backing Maverick in their vision to revolutionize the next generation of DeFi dApps and helping them build their liquidity in all market conditions. Click the link at the bottom of this episode. Let them know that I sent you. Thanks, guys. Bring price discovery on chain 
And I think Anna was the more optimistic one about that. And Ludwig was slightly less optimistic, um, reversing stereotypes about, uh, you know, age and, and tech optimism. So my, my question to you is like going through the season, it was something that we asked at the, the very top of the season. But, you know, what, do, what are your sort of current thoughts about bringing price discovery on chain and competing with the likes of, uh, you know, our centralized counterparts, Binance, Coinbase, et cetera? I think ultimately it's for for that that goal of mine to happen for dex volume to exceed centralized exchange volume we're going to have to have yeah. price discovery of everything on chain um right you already have price discovery of uh of long tail tokens that i think that mm-hmm. happens on chain largely of mm-hmm. like the, you know, the really really long tail certainly um happens on chain i think we we see from that just a lot of the signs of oh okay like dex design is different in a world where you're doing this on chain and in fact like some you know we I, I've, I've been having interesting conversations with um, with Alex's Logan, who we, we had a, as a guest, about just like how actually some of the insights, some of the uh, intuitions you have for how to design a DEX for um, uh, stuff like Ethereum is actually just reversed, um, or you want to do different things for for long tail when you have price discovery happening. So I think it, there'll, there'll be a whole, you know, the point there is there's something interesting in designing DEXs for the long tail, because that's actually, that's the problem we're eventually going to face if we want to exceed, you know, Binance volumes and uh, and Ethereum on, and, you know, ETUSD on chain. Is ultimately, it's going to be, how do we actually design this so that price discovery can happen on it? Um, So yeah, I I think ultimately it will. Um, I think, I think that's, that's going to be the goal, but I'm not sure, I'm not sure what that will look like um, or, or how exactly to do it. I just think it's important for us to achieve that goal of having primarily non-custodial trading. Yeah, I tend to agree with you. I mean, you know, every time I said that, there's someone on the comments said, uh, "Take a shot." Every single time uh, Mike says, "I tend to agree with you," so I gotta, I gotta <laughs> stop doing that. <laughs> I have to stop doing that. Um, okay, the other, the other big question that we sort of continued to to go back to over the season is the presence of uh, passive stakers, and specifically more pass or passive, sorry, passive LPs, um, and specifically retail. So. You know, on, in one sense, I think it's kind of a nice story uh, for people to buy into. On the other hand, it's, it's really how Uniswap got its start. It was such, such a cool, like, zero to one magical moment for something that you could do with magical internet money. Right? You could just be a passive market maker um, and people could just show up and trade. And I think everyone kind of fell in love with that idea. But now, as you know, we move further and further towards our goal of bringing price discovery on chain, you know, market making is is first of all, very tough. Um, and it's also very active, I would say. So, you know, and I think now as we're starting to move some of the, the larger components of exchanges off chain, um, you know, people are starting to question, well, like, hey, I mean, we're, we're kind of disadvantaging the, the retail passive staker. And, you know, we've kind of asked, well, well, does that even really ultimately make sense? Because actually market making is a really difficult job and we have big goals in terms of how much we want this industry to scale. So where do you end the season thinking about you know, sort of passive retail LPing. I think I, I think I end up almost agnostic on it, and so you know, I think at times in my um, Dex research career, I've been incredibly, um, I've, I've had believed extraordinarily deeply in in the importance of passive liquidity providing uh, provision as a component, and, and I think it was a key thing that made um, Uniswap V1 and V2 work. Um, I think it's important. It's important thing that makes Uniswap V3 work. Um, I think the fact that it supports passive liquidity provision on it um, and isn't isn't just entirely, uh, you know, that doesn't give up that that ability. And I think the most of the design of V3, you know, is is a lot of it is is just is entirely constrained by okay, we still need to be able to actually provide passive liquidity on this. You can't. We're not going to just turn it into into a, a limit order book or something. 
there's a lot of practical and, and I think some, some ideological reasons why I think that's important. Um, and then, but then I think, you know, I've also uh, at times been really extremely, you know, been, okay, like actually all that matters is um, uh, Swapper, is, is Swapper. It's like, if that's, if that's actually our North Star, then, and right now, if in some cases it doesn't make sense to have passive liquidity provide liquidity for them, then so much the worse for, for passive liquidity. And I think, you know, that's, I think that's true in some situations as well. And, but then, you know, I think we're swinging back in some ways where you start to see, actually, it's very, it is very hard um, in some cases to, uh, to provide a similar swapper experience without, without passive liquidity, right? I think people, you know, people have been pointing out this out the whole time. Um, and, you know, I think you have to, I think you have to acknowledge it. My, my key point is, like, always, it's just important not to get too much religion about any of these things. Um, it's important not to think, you know, because especially with Uniswap, they had this big success with passive liquidity and then do you want to be too, but that, that didn't stop them from saying, all right, like, how are we going to make the most, the best use of active liquidity? And it may involve doing, um, doing this thing in V3 that, that changes some of those, uh, those principles for, for why it might have worked earlier. I think it's just, this is an ongoing infinite game where you have um, sophisticated parties uh, making, you know, uh, reacting and acting, reacting to both sides in ways that can't always be anticipated. And a principle that, that works very well for years may stop working. This is just what it's like to design markets or to participate in markets. And I think if you get too much ideology, if you, get, if you decide like, oh, I, I have this principle that actually, you know, um, passive liquidity or AMMs or constant product or whatever is the thing, um, you're going to end up at some point being, being wrong or being blindsided, as opposed to thinking like just looking at the situation on the ground and being like, all right, like what's actually the right move in this situation? And, you know, I think I've uh, been having lived through some of these shifts in ideology myself. It's made me think, all right, it's actually pretty important to have you want to have the right North Star, but then within that, you can't have a lot of, of heuristics that you're, that you're uh, claiming too, too strongly. And that's what I, what I mean when I say it's important not to have too much religion about passive versus active or AMMs versus clobs or, or anything like that. You have to like look at actually what's going on. And, and a lot of the time, the devil's in the details. I think people talk about clobs versus AMMs, but you know, there are some clobs that, are, that act extremely closely to, to AMMs. Or some, you know, you saw B3 acts a lot like a clob, as we've talked about uh, a lot mm -hmm. here in important respects. And the difference, you know, it's not, it's not something that comes up in these like big ideological discussions. It's going to be some really finicky thing about how fees are charged or how transactions are ordered. It's going to be somewhere deep in the logic here that like only one person implementing it knows that turns out to make all the difference. And so I think if you're not like deep in the details of these things, if you're just saying like, oh, I see AMMs, I believe in AMMs, you know, I believe in passive liquidity and clouds. It's like, all right, like, you know, um, if you look a lot deeper, I think everybody, you know, working on these things closely. And we saw this when we were talking with Doug um, and Eugene. Is like mm. they have much more nuanced views, I think, than some of the people who are just observing it from a distance. Because again, you just yeah. notice a lot of the in, in practice, a lot of a lot of the time, these things change and um, and things are, are less clear cut than people might think. Yeah, crypto is a funny industry for uh, ideology, and you know, if you think about something like Bitcoin, why that specific ideology uh, formed around decentralization is because the purpose of that app specific like basic is Bitcoin is kind of the first app chain. It's the money app chain, and the reason why it and it, it was. Uh, so religious about enforcing the particular properties of decentralization that it did was because that's what was needed for a decentralized money because there's a lot of risk of it being shut down by the state but i think even you can see this in you can see this in ethereum a lot it, they they kind of inherited a lot of those same uh those same ideas very specific ideas about decentralization without maybe questioning like hey we have a sort of a different north star in vision what level of decentralization specifically is appropriate but because I mean, the history of crypto, too, is like very small, nuanced, technical differences that people have a hard time getting anyone else to pay attention to. So they kind of drum up this big, you know, sort of values based uh, reason for why people should care. And again, 
I'm going to go back and show this these old episodes of the, around the blocks. People go back and listen to what people are saying during the block size war. I find it extremely interesting. So, oh, yeah. yeah, it's so I, I I don't tend to agree with you. I just agree with you. So sure. uh, I, I think that sounds good. So what the engine can be useful for is I think when you have these, these degenerative equilibria, when things, you know, things will go in one direction, if you don't stop it. Sometimes like just having religion and ideology and having people be like, we're actually going to stop this, even though it's rational. And even though it maybe it seems to make sense because we have this weird principle, it is, it can be useful to actually have people do that. And I think Med yeah. is one example. There have been times where we've been at risk of like, you know, veering off the Med cliff toward like incentivized reorgs, for example, one example. And then you end up with people just being like, I, that this, that we're going to draw a line here, sort of maybe, maybe it's not, maybe, you know, it doesn't make sense to draw the line here. Maybe we should have drawn the line somewhere else. Or the, you can make a rational argument for why everyone should do this, but actually we're just going to say you're not allowed to do this. And then like people, people for maybe religious reasons agree. And then you end up in this spontaneous order that maybe is better than you would have otherwise done enough. So I don't mean, I don't mean to discount, obviously all of crypto is about, is basically a religion about, okay, we have to believe this stuff is valuable. And if we all believe it, then we, um, then it will be. Um, and similarly, I think we, we all sort of have to act Despite saying, oh, if you don't have to trust anyone, you sort of I'll have to trust like the whole system and people will some, not always act in their own individual rational self-interest, but sometimes in a broader interest that you might call religion. But I think ultimately, again, like that, when, when that gets into like, oh, I better not add this feature to my, to my decks because, um, you know, some, some feature or whatever, I think it can, it can end up um, sort of hampering actually the evolution of the space. Yeah. Uh, last, last, last question on this vein is we got into this a little bit with, with Hart where we talked about multi-chain and bridging and intense and the role of that it's like every buzzword in one but the role that market makers have there and you know i guess just to get your sort of final verdict we've talked about this a good amount explicitly so don't need to spend a ton of time but you know i think when you look at basically interop and especially cross-chain has been a much more difficult thorny problem than people originally thought it was going to be like if you rewind the, the clock five years and listen to some of the discourse it's just assume we'll just figure bridging out and now, honestly, some it feels like bridges are starting to converge actually around. I know you wouldn't call Uniswap X a bridge, but we did talk about the the similarities between cross-chain DEXs and bridges. And certainly the across model seems to be uh, something that other DEXs I'm starting to see converge around as well. But, uh, you know, we're, we're relying on market makers to basically act as, um, you know, uh, definitely sort of managing the inventory problem, the financial inventory problem across these different uh, trust zones, so to speak. So. I mean, how much do you care about, think about, um, consider it potentially an issue that we're relying increasingly on market makers in the design of a lot of these products? Yeah. So I think in a lot of these systems, you end up with this sort of Scylla and Charybdis where you, you have to pick one kind of centralization or I don't know if centralization is the right word, but there's, there's one sort of one of these risks that is the same type that people complain about. One of them is um, so one, one design for something is you could say, we're going to have a perfectly competitive market. We're going to design a system where anyone can participate and the best participant wins. And the other is um, we're going to basically have uh, uh, just one trusted, one party that, that ha- plays this role. And we're just going to trust them that they can, that they do it properly. Um, and I think, you know, some systems, you know, for example, in the, in the former, you know, Bitcoin mining is one example where we just, you know, it's just a globally competitive uh, market. Um, Ethereum mining, um, MEV extraction on on chain. Um, in some ways, in some ways, you know, is perfectly competitive. Um, you know, when you when you have like a PBS, the builder builder competition, right? You have this competition. Um, and then uh, some examples of the, of the latter are like you know uh, uh, L two um, 
a sequencer, you know, L2 sequencers, where right now we have, you know, uh, generally there's a single party that adjusted the sequence, uh, sequence transactions um, or blocks. And, um, you know, there's, there's possible abuses that they could have there, but we uh, generally the system trusts uh, that these parties won't do that. And I think both of these, you know, the, the former, you know, sounds really good, but often what it means is this ends up going to whoever in the world is best at this, which may not be the person you would want to be running. It might be like whoever is best in the world at high frequency trading turns out to be the person who is now constructing the blocks, right? Um, yeah. And so, you know, I, I think there's, pl there's uh, places in the world, you know, in crypto for both of these systems. But I think it's worth, it's worth noting that that's when we talk about a perfectly competitive system where it's just like we're, we're going to have no barriers to entry um, and just say like it's perfectly competitive means ultimately like we're going to actually, we're going to basically trust this to whoever is best at it. Um, and, you know, I think in some cases that can have, that can have weird lateral consequences. Um, and, you know, I think, I think this is one case where sometimes there's this, yes, yeah, so that, that, that there's this price of anarchy where if you have this competition, um, uh, then actually like, you know, there's, it's not socially optimal. Um, and I think this is, that's, this is one example, you know, the rise of like integrated searcher builders um, as one example is, is like where we might not have, we might not have wanted it to happen, but it's a consequence of just having actually um, this open competition and total decentralization. And then the other end of the spectrum, you can have single trusted parties that like, that do everything right. You know, I think mostly, uh, uh, I think most of the, most parties that have that have done this like mostly seem seem like they're not you know, front running users. I don't know, um, uh, but like people do it. But we we say we don't actually want just to have like a single trusted party, right? And so maybe there's there's places in that spectrum to go. But I think it's important to note that that like the alternative to anyone you know anyone can compete um, this meritocracy is like potentially you know uh, benevolent dictatorship. Or that's that's the that's the other end of the other extreme end of the spectrum. And both of those can lead to you know so. When you're talking about, oh, we have this problem of, you know, um, uh, like that causes centralization. I think ultimately that's, it's just because like whoever's best at it, if you have a meritocratic system that's designed seemingly sort of pop, uh, perfectly, that can mean that whoever's best at it just ends up not running it. Rather than yeah. whoever you might. So rather than dictatorship, you might say like, this is, this is uh, the comparison between just like meritocracy or competition and democracy, right? One where it's just like everybody just chooses who the sequencer is and then we just trust that sequencer and maybe we can, we can replace them. It's not necessarily dictatorship. Um, yeah. But, and it, it's, I think there are, there's places for both of these kind of dynamics, but both of them can be criticized, you know, maybe rightly, as, as having some aspects of centralization or centralizing pressure. Yeah. Well, I, the way that I also think about this is if we're building new, uh, you know, new financial infrastructure here that just requires the participation of professional actors, I think, I think, and this is where it's important. Like, look, if you're going to be like value, the values driven religious part of crypto, I think you're absolutely right. There's huge benefits to that. But I, but I also think it shouldn't, sometimes you can make a worse, ultimate like the decision that you make if it's values guided can ultimately end up being worse because you're not particularly like realistic about what the outcome is going to be and like this is where i actually remember listening i can't remember who said it anymore so i apologize i don't mean to drag your view here but i remember someone describing how DAOs were so great because permissionless participation anyone can just participate and i remember thinking it makes no sense to me imagine if apple tomorrow was like anyone can just be an employee at apple It'd be like would you <laughs> Would you be more bullish? Would they build a better iPhone? Like, I don't think so. So yep. I don't know. I think there's, you know, layers of compromise uh, that will lead to yeah. a better outcome for everyone. That's right. And I, I tend to, you know, especially in market design, when designing markets, I think just um, a global perfectly fair competition seems like the right, the right just general principle to be designing around. Um, but, you know, again, I think, I think there's, I think there can be cost of it. I think we're we'll right to point out, like, this can, this can tend to have centralizing effects. And so figuring out what, what the effects are is important. But yeah, and I think ultimately, if we, if we just want it to work as well as possible, then 
I think we sort of have to say like, all right, we're going to get whoever's best at this to be doing it. Because we're willing to accept that other people might not be. And so end up, they will end up providing that service anyway. And maybe they'll be doing it in some other system. Totally. Totally. All right. Um, last couple of questions here, but I, I would love to just get your, you know, we talked a lot, um, you know, in a, in a tertiary way, but also had uh, some, some folks from the Uniswap team, Uniswap X, uh, Shin on earlier this season. And I would just love to get a sense of I don't, anything you can tell us about, you know, Uni V4, uh, et cetera. Like it was very, it was very cool to talk to Ludwig uh, as a builder of a hook. I actually ended up talking to a couple of other uh, founders building hooks on Uniswap. It feels like that's actually quite rich uh, as an ecosystem. It was actually a question, at least for me going into the season about, okay, it's very cool sort of platform design. How many people are going to end up building hooks, especially talking to Ludwig even off air. It's like, man, this is a extremely, you know, he was just very convinced, very compelling value proposition. And it feels from, from my vantage point, like actually you are having a lot of people build these hooks. So, you know, what's the update on, on V4? Yeah. Yeah. So I think before they're, they're checking along, it's, it's an extremely difficult contract to get right. And so I think the security, you know, the, they're, you're put it through just, you know, maybe one of the most extensive audits and security, um, uh, reviews that, of uh, in Ethereum history, um, uh, mm. contract history. And so I think that's, you know, that's one thing that's, that's, uh, going to push back, but I think ultimately, yeah, I think they're, you know, they're, the Uniswap team and I have just been incredibly excited as well about seeing all the um, their uh, interest in building on top of it. And I think that's that's something where you know we just maybe uh, what I love about it is it's it's unleashed this kind of wave of innovation on top of Uniswap that I think we hadn't seen to date. In part because I think just Uniswap hadn't been quite designed um, to be modular enough that you can add these other improvements on top of it. And so yeah, so I'm I'm really optimistic about um, about a lot of the projects that are um, uh, building on top of it. And yeah, I think hopefully, yeah, I think I think. Hopefully, yeah, we'll we'll see. We'll see. I, I really hope the dominant the dominant hooks are something we would never have expected. Um, and I think that's that's you know what makes it exciting to me. Yeah. Um, all right, Dan. Uh, you know, we've made it through many episodes here, many hours of questions, uh, and I've saved uh, this one for you, uh, best for last. Is there ever going to be a uni chain? <laughs> you know, are we ever going to get uni chain? This is the long foretold uh, Dan Elitzer thought piece from a while ago. You know, it was. As I was, I was listening to Antonio in that interview, I was like, "Man, this is pretty compelling value prop from the perspective of of a of an of a of a deck." So, I mean, I know you can't. Uh, there's a lot you probably can't reveal, but I mean, how do how do you feel about the perspective of a potential unichain? Yeah, I think I think it could I think it could make a lot of sense. Um, and you know, I don't think I don't I don't think I have that much more um, information on this really than uh, than anyone's than has been put out publicly. Uh, so mostly I'm talking here just maybe from my own opinion on, and from first principles. Right. To me, what's important, I think, is um, you want it ultimately for a, for a uh, DEX chain to make sense. The really big challenge for it is, is the on and off ramp, is getting people onto it and off of it. Um, the amazing thing about Uniswap um, on Ethereum is that your money is already there. So when people started using tokens um, on chain for other things, when DeFi Summer started happening, the, the exchange they wanted to trade it on wasn't, you know, they didn't want to have to like go deposit it into a centralized exchange and then, and then trade it and then, and then move it back. Um, mm -hmm. They wanted to be able to, to trade it right where, right where it was. And so it's actually fewer transactions and it's cheaper and simpler to be able to just trade it on chain. I think that was incredibly important for the rise of DEXs at all. Um, I think the, if you have a, a DEX chain that is just for people to go on, live on that chain and speculate on uh, tokens there, it's, you know, in the way that people do with centralized exchanges, it's a huge use case. It's bigger than it's bigger than Dex trading right now. People doing this on centralized exchanges, right? And so I think that's mm. I think that's great. But to me, like the thing that I would really love and is really important for that to be able to work is this cross chain. Experience. 
just the ability to say, I'm going to buy a token on that chain, even though I'm, I'm actually not, um, my assets right now are not on that chain. So to me, having a really good Uniswap cross-chain experience um, is, I think, like maybe the most important unlock. And luckily, I think Uniswap X cross-chain is, is a fantastic design. Um, and so, and the, that, I think, is going gonna, is gonna to really unlock a lot in terms of just in general interoperability and moving assets between chains. Um, I think, yeah, that, that's the kind of thing that unlocks, like, you, know, you, could, have, you could imagine having, like, the main Uniswap chain not being on, uh, on Ethereum 01. That requires, again, that people still be able to use it as if it is, or, or without that much uh, experience degradation as if it is. And I think that requires good cross-chain experience. Yeah. All right. Well, Dan, this has been a phenomenally fun season. Again, uh, bittersweet that it's, it's coming to an end, but um, I think we did some, hosted some really good conversations and hopefully move the dialogue forward in terms of lever, uh, DEX design, uh, a whole bunch of stuff that we talked about. So, um, you know, I appreciate it. Um, yeah, we'll have to have you back on in, in future bell curve seasons. Um, I, I will promise you an episode all on uh, Dutch auctions uh, so we can get into the weeds there at some point. But yeah, this was a lot yeah. of fun. Thanks so much, Mike, for inviting me to co-host. I mean, I think you know, Mike, Mike did uh, by far most of the work and got most of the guests on. And I think it was great just to, for me to be able to join this and, and talk to some of my favorite people in the industry about uh, these topics that I'm really interested in and be able to bloviate at depth about them um, uh, in response to, to open ended questions from Mike, who's a fantastic interviewer. And so I, thanks again for having me on. I think it's been a, it's been a blast, um, uh, no pun intended. And uh, yeah, hopefully, I'm, but hopefully I'll get to come on again in a, in a future season as a guest. Absolutely, my friend. Standing invite. Um, all right. Cheers.